All right, before today's show, I want to talk directly to you. Yeah, I'm talking to you. I know you're out there. I see you out there. You want to start your business. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what pieces are missing. You're not sure how to find deals. You're not sure how to raise money. You're not sure how to structure your business. Who's supposed to be in it? What do they do? What are the roles involved? And how does that all work? And how do you scale it eventually? Well, listen, I've got you covered. I know this is a huge problem and I know you're struggling with it. And I have a solution. It's called the Business Fast Track Blueprint. It's a program that I put together. It's four weeks and it's designed to quickly get you off the starting blocks and get your business off the ground and running with a plan, a blueprint of how to create that business and turn it into something that gets you to your goals. If you want to find out more, it's Starting soon, you can go to Business Fast Track Blueprint. Go there, check it out, businessfasttrackblueprint.com. Sign up, be there. I want to see you on the inside of this program. I want to help you get your business off the ground and get you off to the races in 2021. Go check it out. You know, my father at a very young age, um, it was interesting, but he told me a story about how he ultimately went on his own. And, and I was asking this question. I said, why did you quit this um, law firm that you were with? Because it was a very prestigious law firm. And he said, one reason, they offered me too much. And I kind of looked at him. I said, that doesn't make sense. He said, look, I, I knew that if, if I were to take um, that money, I would have never left and taken a risk on my own. And I was at, you know, sort of this inflection point in my life where I was with this company and, and you know, I was moving up the ranks and I knew, God, if, if I get to this level, I'm going to be comfortable to the point that the risk is going to be too great. Yeah. So before they gave me that opportunity, I went in and, um, you know, took a shot and I knew that I could replace my income. And I did that. And it was the best thing I ever did. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Thank you for joining me at Just Start Real Estate. I am so happy that you joined me. I'm so happy that you tuned in. If you are loving the show or even just liking it, go and give me a rating review right now. I beg of you. It's so important. It helps me be heard by other people. And I would consider it a real solid if you would do that for me. Uh, but seriously, folks, I have a good one for you today. Very hard hitter on the show. Uh, somebody who has a tremendous business and is just tremendously knowledgeable about real estate and multifamily specifically. He is the principal of Origin Investments. He co-chairs the investment committee and oversees investor relations, marketing, and company operations. He brings 25 years of investment and risk management experience to the company and believes that calculated risk-taking in inefficient markets is the key to building wealth. He regularly contributes to Ford's, Forbes, I'm sorry, Forbes Entrepreneur and HuffPost, as well as frequently speaks on real estate investment panels and podcasts just like this one. Guys, I want to give you, with no further ado, this guy is absolutely amazing. The knowledge is off the charts, and we had a good conversation and a lot of fun. I think you're going to get a lot out of this. His name is Michael Episcope, and here he is, guys. All right, Michael. Thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for appreciating. Uh, thanks for uh, agreeing to do this, and welcome to Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be fun. Uh, I, I asked you, I always do. I asked some uh, my guests off, off 
you know, off camera, kind of off mic type questions. And uh, you're giving me such great and, and interesting answers that I was like, oh man, we got to get some of this on the show. So uh, I, I, this is going to be a good one, guys. It's going to be, I think, very, very helpful to folks uh, at a high level. And I think that there's some definitely some things folks can do at a beginner's level to apply the things that we're going to talk about. I do a lot of research on my guests before they come on. So I've got definitely some things in your background and some things that you're up to and things that you like to talk about. So we're going to have an awful lot to do here. And I'm excited to dive into it. But before we do, if you don't mind, uh, can we talk about your start and maybe even before you I know you're you're kind of a finance guy from way back but maybe even before that like what, what was your life growing up like what kind of a family did you grow up in and how, how did you even get into the finance world to begin with okay yeah that, that's taken way back where do I start um I, I guess I'll I'll just take you back to kind of when I started um, in real estate and what got me exposed to it because um this what I'm doing today is my second career but I got exposed to it when I was younger, and and really in two ways, I got invest, uh, exposed to sort of the investment side of real estate through my grandfather. Um, he was in real estate. It was actually his second career as well, but he did a lot in the multifamily space, the triple net space on the development side. And I I spent my summers with him um, at his buildings, um, you know, just doing labor, things like that. And, and he was a very hands-on individual when it came to real estate investing. And I sort of got my first um, taste for it and saw the the lifestyle that it helped afford for him. And I didn't realize what a profound effect that was going to have on me later in life. And, and I sort of, you know, um, you know, those were, I would say up and through high school, I, I did that. And then in high school, I ended up moving to Florida. So I didn't have any more experience with real estate. But what I did do um, when I came back to Chicago um, for school, I ended up going to a DePaul University here. I spent um, my first year at, at DePaul and then I got a summer job at the CME and I spent the next kind of 16, 17 years down at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And, and my first career was as a commodities trader. And that was a fantastic career, learned a, a ton. Um, my undergrad was in economics and finance. And so being able to kind of see um, how economics and fan, finance impacted the, the world of commodities and Commodities are really all encompassing. They include the financial commodities and the physical commodities. What I traded were interest rates, which is kind of a very esoteric side of, of the business. Um, but it was a great way to learn about the financial space. And I, I traded for about 10 years and ended up um, retiring from that area when I was about 36 years old. And I, I did very well. I had a great career. I'm very blessed to have done that. But I was also young. I, I didn't want to retire. I wanted to do something. And I yeah. think it was that early exposure to real estate that really interested me in that asset class. And I had been investing um, while I was trading and as I was accumulating wealth um, passively for about you know four or five six years, yeah. never you know had any luck and and I got together with my partner in 2007 and we had invested together um, in quite a number of deals and we just said look we can do this better and this was at a time you know 06 07 this was prior to the Jobs Act prior to there being podcasts like this a lot of deals on the um, the internet um, and just the, this plethora of opportunities that you see today so. Yeah. We started Origin in 2007, and um, we just grew it organically. But in, in the beginning, I mean, we called it Origin because we just didn't want the firm called Episcope and Shear, and we wanted something that would grow beyond us. 
And in the reality was it was a family office. We were two guys buying real estate, putting our money to work. And then uh, we ended up bringing in friends and family and syndicating and growing a fun business and just doing more deals and generating returns and providing people with uh, great service. And, and it was unique for us because being on both sides of the table as an investor and a manager and having invested in private equity for many years, you, you understand the psychology of the investor, but you also understand what it means to be uh, what, a, what a great investment firm should look like from yeah. the client service side to the returns, to the risk management. And that's really something that I would say benefited me is my early career was all about risk management. And my second career in real estate has also all been about risk management. And our belief is that you buy great real estate, you take care of the downside and the upside takes care of itself. And that's kind of a philosophy that we've lived by and how we've grown the firm. And um, today we represent more than 1,500 individual investors. We've operated five funds, two that are open. And it's just been a fantastic run for me. And I'm, I'm really kind of um, you know blessed where I am. We have a phenomenal team and it's fun to go into work these days. Okay. Tons of questions generated from all that. And thank you for that, by the way. Very, very good uh, description of your background. Out of curiosity, why did you leave your trader job? Why did you leave that uh, that industry? Was it, and I'm just, it was, it, was it like super intense like you see in movies where it's like you just can't do it for 30 years? Or what, what was the reason you left? So two reasons. Um, number one, I was at a point in life when I started trading, I had, you know, I couldn't rub two nickels to my name. And I went and traded and decided to, to take that kind of risk because I had nothing to lose. And I remember, you know, my father at a very young age, um, it was interesting, but he told me a story about how he ultimately went on his own. And, and I was asking this question. I said, why did you quit this um, law firm that you were with? Because it was a very prestigious law firm. And he said, one reason, they offered me too much. And I kind of looked at him. I said, that doesn't make sense. He said, look, I, I knew that if, if I were to take um, that money, I would have never left and taken a risk on my own. And I was at you know, sort of this inflection point in my life where I was with this company and, and you know, I was moving up the ranks. And I knew, God, if, if I get to this level, I'm going to be comfortable to the point that the risk is going to be too great. Yeah. So before they gave me that opportunity, I went in and um, you know, took a shot. And I knew that I could replace my income. And I did that. And it was the best thing I ever did. But getting to your, your, you know, to the answer of why I stepped out, because when I got to the end of my career, I had a lot more to lose than make. And I, I just looked at it and it was sort of a risk reward. And I, I, when I started trading, I was single. By the time I was done 10 years later, I was married. I had two kids. I had another one on the way. I had stacked up more chips than I ever, you know, believe, you know, you know, than was necessary and I just said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to risk, you know, come in here every day. And so that's kind of yeah. why I, I stepped away from the business when I did for a reason. I mean, yeah. but the other reason is really at that time, computers started to take over the industry. And I, I was very cognizant about what my edge was in the market. And I used to tell people, you know, when you, when you, when you gain a reputation as a really good trader, like people always ask your opinion, where do you think we're going? Where do you think we're going? And I yeah. said, look, if we're going higher, I'm going to buy. If we're going lower, I'm going to sell. If we go too low, I'm going to buy. If we go too high, I'm going to sell. And that was kind of my, I didn't, I wasn't able to see around corners or predict markets. And, and yeah. I don't even like the crystal ball questions today. Yeah. Where do you think the market's going today? 
Nobody has the answers to that. What yeah. I was really good at is reacting to the information at hand. And I was faster than anybody else around me. Yeah. And so when the computer started coming in, it took that edge away from me. So mm. I went from being, you know, not a matter of, um, you know, how much I was going to make in a day, but all of a sudden my PL became very volatile. And I said, I'm done. I'm checking out. I literally put a card in my pocket on November 16th of 2005 um, and walked out of the pit and everybody thought I was kidding. I said, I'm done. That's it. I sold my seat, um, you know, probably three months later and, and that was it. And I just checked out. So, wow. and then I, I, you know, that's when I started my real estate career and I stayed home for about six months. My wife thought I was retired and I, I enrolled in the master's of real estate um, department at DePaul and started just re-educating myself. That's funny. So you've you've effectively uh, ruined my last question for you about where's the market going because you hate that question. Um, no, kidding. Um, yeah, you know I get that all the time too. Where's where's the market going? The the one that I like, and maybe you can relate to this. Maybe I don't know if you agree or disagree, but it'd be interesting to ask you. When people ask me how is the market, how's the market, my my answer is always the same. It's great. It's great because the market is the market and what you yeah. do and how you react and how you pivot or uh, adjust your approach is really what makes all the difference. The market's not good or bad. It just is what it is. And then you do what yeah. you have to do around it. So, yeah, um, I mean, I understand that question and I'd rather get that one than where are we going? And I'll, I'll just, you know, <laughs> yeah. with with the question, where are we going? And I'll just say we use um, data and information in the same processes. So when people say where are interest rates going, right? We have to have a process on by which we're building a model that we underwrite interest rates. And what we do is we, we put in the LIBOR curve into our models. That's mm -hmm. the best predictor of where interest rates are going. Where I think they're going or where you know the JP Morgan analyst thinks they're going is irrelevant because the market ultimately decides. Yeah. And so we use a very rigorous process when we're creating models that's data-driven and the same over and over and over. So all models have to withstand the same sort of environment, if you will, yeah. and how the market is. I mean, I'm I'm usually, you know, what I look at is sort of the risk premium spread in the market. Where was it six months ago? Where was it today? Are we getting paid to take risk in the market? And I'll be honest, like for us today, when we're looking at the 10 year that's just creeped up to one seven and borrowing rates that are now at three and a half and cap rates to come down to four percent. Um, you're not getting a lot of positive leverage in the market today. And yeah. it doesn't feel like a great risk return. And so I'm happy to answer that question. And I will say four months ago, we were looking at the market going, my God, you have dislocated assets here and you have borrowing rates at 2% and you can still buy cap rates at 4.5%, the deals at 4.5 cap rates. And that spread that we look at, really the, the institutional spread is the cap rate to the 10-year treasury but the 10-year treasury impacts borrowing rates. And, and so that's why those are correlated. And the borrowing rates actually have a floor. But when you're when institutions are looking at it, they look as at real estate as an alternative to fixed income, and they might only leverage it at 30 to 40%. So if they can get 250 basis points above treasuries, that's very healthy. And that's yeah. kind of where we are today. Um, but for us, because we're a leveraged model, it's a little bit different. So we're going more, um, you know, tilting our portfolios more towards the debt, the lending side, ground up development, developing to a much higher cap rate in the future to protect ourselves. Yeah. Hard to buy core plus and value add because that's where all the money is in the market today. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let me ask you this because I don't think I've done a great job. And for the people listening going, I, I need to know what what. You're in real estate, obviously. What are you buying? What are your assets? What is it that you actually buy? Is it apartment buildings? Is it commercial? What 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 are you invested in right now? 
or so apartment buildings. Apartment. We buy class B or better apartment buildings. Okay. We do ground up development and we do um, preferred equity, meaning we lend to certain projects. So we are on the equity side and our, our, it so happens that our fund has many different products that we can invest in within the capital structure, but it's all class B or better. It tends to be class A. Okay. And then in growth markets around the United States. So Sunbelt markets, low tax states, places like, you know, the Texas markets, Florida markets, Nashville, yeah. um, Southeast, Denver, Phoenix, all the markets that everybody's heard of. So, um, you know, and, and the reason why we have very flexible capital, because in times like this, you have to be able to really navigate across mm -hmm. the risk spectrum when you don't see the, the kind of, um, risk return that that you think is appropriate with the with the money you're putting out. So yeah. where we're seeing, you know, what I was just explaining that the cap rate to borrowing rates, we're not getting any positive leverage, especially after amortization. Um, we actually prefer lending money right now to these developments, and we're able to get 12, 13% in a protected position in the capital structure, but then get a right of first refusal on the buy. So, you know, if the economy recovers it, not economy. I think the economy is doing a lot better today than we thought six months ago. But we can wait and watch and see this project get built and then decide if we want to buy it in two or three years when yeah. maybe that um, that lending spread is, is a little more favorable. And then we also do ground up development and then we can buy existing assets. So a lot of flexibility. And that's kind of what we've built into our system. So we can react to any market. Nice. So for the folks that are listening to this, you know, and some people listening to this are passive investors and they're investing in things. Just real quickly, I know this wasn't your agenda, but tell me a little bit about your fund. What would someone want to know the elevator pitch or the, 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 the summary of what you guys actually provide and what you, what you do for folks? Yeah. We operate two funds right now. I'll talk about the Income Plus Fund. So the Income Plus Fund is for the income-oriented investor. And okay. what that fund does is it delivers a 6% tax-efficient, stable return to investors and yield, and a total return of 9 to 11%. And the advantage of that fund is that people can invest all of their capital at once into a diversified portfolio of assets that's made up of preferred equity, um, common equity that's existing deals and kind of the core plus category. Mm -hmm. And also 20% um, of the fund is dedicated towards ground up development. So you're really, you're, you're investing immediately into assets that are cash flowing assets that are operating and you're putting all your money to work. And I think, you know, for us, when we're, when we're structuring funds, when we're thinking about how can we make capital more efficient, um, our historical funds used to be more on the um, closed end side. And what that means is that they were called capital. So somebody might commit a million dollars to the fund, but then we would call that over a two to three year period. Well, in this fund, if you have a million dollars, you can invest it all at once. And the big difference of that is that when you really break it down, if, if in a call capital fund, if you're going to generate a 15%, we'll call it IRR, because that's how everybody measures this. Um, and then you're in a buy, fix, sell strategy and you're doing all these other things. You have to measure the return of that other cash that's sitting there and not earning a fee. And then you also have to look at the impact of taxes and when you sell those assets and what happens to that. And what we've done with the Income Plus Fund is created an efficient fund so people can invest all of their capital at once. We are a buy, fix, and hold strategy. We take advantage of refinancing um, the opportunities there because there's no taxable um, yeah. income on that. And then we also take advantage of depreciation. And that's what real estate is about. It's about taking advantage of the tax efficiencies. In our old yeah. fund, we realized we just weren't doing that. And on top of that, like when we, you know, we're, we're a learning organization, we look back, what did we do well? What, did, what could we have done better? 
And invariably, you look at it and you're like, I wish we never sold any of those assets. We generated fantastic IRRs and good multiples, but had we hold, held those assets for another four, five, six years, we would have you know, tripled our money from where we were. And, and that's kind of the lesson that we learned is that you don't buy, fix, and sell a great asset. You buy, fix, and hold a great asset for the long duration. And that's how wealth in this country that's how the most amount of wealth has been created in this country. When you think about nine to 11% in a fund, that's a significant amount yeah. on your money. And most, you know, the bogey for most family offices on their whole portfolio, they're trying to hit seven or 8%. And yeah. that's what they're trying to do. Understanding that some of the deals are going to hit a two and some of the deals are going to hit a 12. And, yeah. you know, so that's the income plus fund. And then the QOZ fund is a uh, qualified opportunity zone fund. That's ground up construction in our 12 markets. And that is meant to deliver um, high risk adjusted returns through development. But the real benefit to that is taking advantage of the QOZ law that was passed back in 2017. And I'm not sure how familiar your listeners are with that, but I'll tell you, there's three benefits. There's a deferral of taxes. If you invest gains today, you don't have to pay those taxes till 2026, payable in 2027. You get what's called a step up in basis. So if you have a million dollar gain on any asset and you invest it, you only recognize $900,000 in 2026 if you invest today. And then the best kicker about the um, the fund and just program in general is if you invest a million dollars and it grows to $2 million, $3 million, $5 million, $10 million, you owe zero taxes on the gain in that fund. So that again, when we think about tax efficiency and the best way to take advantage of real estate, that fund, nothing compares to it in terms of tax efficiency. Wow. So these are fun. You know, my partner and I, we like to say that, look, we create funds that we want to invest in. And then we do because, <laughs> you know, in the beginning I talked yeah. about, we were family office, right? Yeah. That's how we started. And yeah. we still use this as our primary means of protecting, growing our capital and tax strategy has to be a part of that because the only thing that matters is what you get after paying the manager and uncle Sam. Yeah. That makes total sense. And that is absolutely amazing. So talk to me about opportunity zones. I know that's something you talk about and people hear that opportunity zones. How big of a part does that play in your in your whole scheme, your overall uh, strategy? Well, that's our that's a dedicated fund. So qualified okay. opportunity zone is a fund itself. Okay. And, um, you know, right now, I, I, there's a lot of things that have happened in qualified opportunity zones. And there's sort of been this arc over the last few years. And I think in uh, 2018, when, when this, I don't even know, I don't think I knew the word qualified opportunity zones until, you know, mid 2018. And most okay. people don't because it was part of the tax cuts and jobs act. Yep. And, and we approach it like everybody else very skeptically. And, and the thing about the qualified opportunity zones are these are um, areas that have been outlined within geographic communities that are tend to be lower to moderate income on the 2010 census tract. And they follow, um, you know, in every city, they, they had some discretion on where they could draw the lines. And we we're like, that's not what we do. But as we looked into it in 2000, um, late 2018, we started realizing that, you know what, we're already in these markets. Yeah. And, I, and that is the biggest misconception is that these qualified opportunity zones are in blighted areas, areas that don't make sense, areas that you wouldn't invest in. And what we found was that three deals that are in our fund three are actually in qualified opportunity zones. We're not getting the tax benefits because that was prior to yeah. what we knew. Yeah. And then we were looking at two more deals in there because we're always in the path of growth where the transitions are happening. And so today there are about 8,700 qualified opportunity zones. 
I would say for us within our 12 markets, you know, we're looking at probably five to 10 percent of the area. And, and what I like to say is we're sort of um, fishing around the fringes, the edges. And okay. out of our eight properties in our qualified opportunities Zone fund today, three of them um, right across the street is market rate. So we're literally on the border there and they're great projects. And so we don't look at the world any differently in a qualified opportunity zone. We underwrite the same, we look at the same, all the tax benefits happen to the investor on the back end. So we have to make sure that we um, are, are doing a good job, making money, building the project on time, on budget, in the right markets, et cetera. Yeah. And I've, um, you know, personally, I put a lot of my money into these funds as well. And the more gains I can find, the more money I'll be putting um, into the qualified opportunities zone program because it's just it's too good not to look at. Yeah, you mentioned that your in your business you you did a lot of uh, closed end or you would sell at the end and, and that's sort of not where you're going now. How how do you decide? Do you ever sell anymore? And if so, how do you how do you know when you want to sell one? Or are you just keeping a period? There are no more sales. No, there would be sales, but okay. the difference is if we think about the income plus fund. We have the ability to sell, but in a fund structure, because it's a long dated open-ended fund, it's the investor who decides when they want to sell their units. Mm. We can take advantage of, again, one of the greatest tax benefits of real estate, the 1031 exchange within the structure and defer those taxes forever. Yeah. And so even with our, we might buy an asset that we're like, look, this isn't irreplaceable real estate, but guess what? It's a great deal for the next four years as we add value and make money on this. And then we can sell that asset and we can 1031 that money with no um, tax liability to anybody in the fund. And so the 1031 exchange, the depreciation, and then the ability to refinance, that's the the trifecta of real estate right there. And and that's really what we built this fund around is taking advantage of those things. And when you look at, you know, taking the, the, the cash drag out of the equation and then also you know, taxes, it's just a much better yeah. way of investing. And that's why we've developed it. And, and that was kind of the whole strategy going in. How do we do this better? Yeah. So give me some sense that I probably should have asked this in the beginning, but I, it just occurred to me that I want to make sure that people know. You mentioned, I think you said you have 15 investors that you, 1,500 investors that you represent. What, how many units do you guys control? Like what is the scope of your business currently? Of I know you have different funds, but if you just kind of yeah. combine that under what umbrella? So are you talking about equity under management, assets under management? Okay. so Uh, Not equity, assets, assets under management. Assets under management. So equity is about $600 million in um, equity and then assets under management are about $2 billion. Because, I mean, you do the math, we're leveraged about two to one in all of our deals. We we generally, we don't use more than 65% leverage in any of our funds out there. That's just part of our risk management policy. Um, We've been in the business for 14 years and it really took off for us around 2015, because up until that point, we had 70 investors and it was more friends and family. And, and my partner and I, you know, just said, look, we have a great product. And, and this really, and, and we knew that we had something better than what was out there. And we felt great about what we were building, our team that we were putting together, our funds. And to us, if you have a great product and you put it in front of enough people, they're going to buy it. Yeah. And that was kind of the aha moment. So we started investing in marketing at that time and changed our um, spent some money on our website for the first time and just started marketing and it's grown organically. And I think really people like the story about not only our returns and our team, but the fact that we have a lot of skin in the game and we're investing side by side with investors. And that yeah. means a lot. And we have a, a great investor relations department. We understand the service side and the, the psychology behind the individual investors. And 
as you and I were were talking, um, you know, before we even started here, what happened in COVID when when the world, um, you know, just kind of blew up all of a sudden. We didn't know what was going on, but we knew that we had to communicate to investors. So it was really instant right yeah. there. Like April of, of that year, we started doing our monthly webinars and communicating and over communicating to investors. And, and really, we've taken that because I've invested in a lot of private equity deals. And, and you know, nobody likes the black hole. People are nervous about their money. We get yeah. that. And the best thing we can do is just tell them, you know, what's happening, even yeah. if it's there's no such thing as good or bad news. It's just new. You know, this is yeah. information we're giving yeah. you, right? And, yeah. and so I think too many firms, um, you know, we've seen them collapse by hoarding bad news and being like, hey, if we just wait, if we just wait, if we just wait, yeah. that's the worst thing you can possibly do, yeah. right? Tell them the truth right away. Everybody's a, you know, like understands the risk of what they're doing. And, um, you know, that was the best way. And we never really got inbound inquiries or anybody who was angry. And when you're managing 1500 investors, that's what you need to do. And we have to just find scalable ways to communicate. And, but that's why we've also built a, a great investor relations department so that if somebody can, you know, has a question, they get an answer in an hour or two. Yeah. And there's nothing frustrating, you know, more frustrating to me when I'm invested with a, a manager, you know, outside of real estate in my personal portfolio and I have a question. And they get back to me week. I'm just like, what am I paying for? You yeah. know? Yeah. Like, you know what? That's I love what I love about that is that is that is a completely scalable and across the board advice. Over communicate with your investors. Whether you have one private investor who's lending on a flip that you're doing, like nobody likes the black hole. Over communicate. Tell them what's happening. Good and bad. If if things are running a little behind, or if you ran into some troubles, like people want to know. They just want to know. Even if it's bad news, they appreciate that. So I, that that is probably the most scalable advice that, that we've even given in this whole episode is, is just that whole over communication with your investors. Now, out of curiosity, um, you mentioned your team. How how big is that team now? Like, how many people are, do you have on your team? We have 30, uh, 30 people across the firm. And, you know, right now they're, they're spread out because of COVID. So mm -hmm. all different markets throughout the United States. Um, and really I would, we have what I'll call five different areas of the firm. So we have, um, we have the marketing team, we have the investor relations team, we have our investment management team and we have our acquisitions team. And then we have um, corporate operations, which is accounting and legal, and we have those in-house as well, and then administrative staff. So everything that we you know, need really to build the firm and scale it and deliver what we need to investors, we insource. And then anything that's not critical to operations, we outsource. So you know, a lot of our accounting, and I, I give our accounting team a ton of credit, um, there are two people in there. One um, woman who's been with us for you know, since the beginning, the last... 12 years. And, um, and they, they use, um, they use fund admins, they use outside accounting firms and they manage all these relationships because you talk to some firms out there and they have 50 people in accounting and I, I don't want to run an accounting firm. And it's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's important, yeah. but there are other firms that are, are built to do this. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. when we think about, you know, we're always about how can we work smarter? How can we work yeah. more efficiently? Um, and it's not, you know, we're not growing a firm in terms of like the number of people. We want to make sure that everybody is working at their highest and best use. Everybody has a balanced life um, and, and we'll add people where we need to. Um, yeah. And we are expanding. We're growing. I mean, you know, if we look at the arc of kind of origin over the last five or six years, we were, you know, 10 people. 
six, seven years ago. And then we went to 12 and then 15 and then 18. And we've just been adding people um, where we need to. And um, But we've always invested ahead of growth. And we don't wait um, to kind of stumble, if you will. We're, yeah. we're always, my partner and I, I mean, we have a you know weekly strategy meeting about, hey, what's going on? What do we need? Where do we see you know, the, the gaps, um, where are we redlined? Where do we really need, you know, personnel? What can we do better? And, and that's just part of building a good business. And so yeah. we're 30 today and um, I think we're pretty good, but we're also, you know, adding bench strength in a lot of areas. And that's important to us, um, you know, to be able to mentor people to, to as we grow, to go into um, positions that are um, just fill upper level positions. Yep. That makes sense. You mentioned uh, a few years, I think you said 2015, you started actually thinking about going after, not going after, it's the wrong way to put it, um, advertising, marketing to people outside of your friends and family. Um, how, wh- what's been the best practices there? Like where, where have you found, you know, the, the highest volume of investors or where, where what kind of yeah. ponds are you fishing in there? That's funny. I ask my uh, my marketing director all the time because, you know, and when she tells me, look, there's no magic bullet. This is all yeah. just, you know, it's one and two and five and 10. Um, I'll say, though, the, the, the best thing you can do is be consistent and you put yourself out there. And I was on, you know, talking to somebody last week about this and they were saying, well, what's the best thing you can do? I'm like, in order to be good at marketing, you have to have a really good product, period. <laughs> then you have to be able to market it and put it in the, in front of people and show your competitive advantages. And what I fundamentally believe, and we talk about this at work, is that if you can't quantify your competitive advantage, then you don't have a competitive advantage. And we talk about that. And you see all too many times in these financial websites, whether it's real estate or these things, our team is great. This is great. That's great. That's not a competitive advantage, you know? Yeah. Um, so we, we you know, talk about the retention rate at origin, our track record, our team's experience, you know, all the things that, that really matter because people are busy and they want to make um, a decision and you have to capture their attention quickly. And if you show the accolades that you've received from third parties and how your team is built and your experience and your track record and what you stand for, those are the things that really matter and, and um, you know, not these long forms. And so we try to go light on the, on the text and, and heavy on sort of, you know, what I'll call the, the things that really jump out at people and the important things. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, it's about infrastructure too. You know, I said, we have, you know, all of our investors, there's not one of them who hasn't spoken with somebody at origin about our fund or our company. And so when we're onboarding people, we have four, you know, highly skilled people in the investor relations department who are talking about our funds with um, all of these investors. They can call me if they want to and talk to me if they you know want to request a call. They can speak to somebody in our um, acquisitions department because at the end of the day, we're building trust online and yeah. that's not easy. And yeah. so, you know, we've had people who say, hey, can you actually, do you mind if, if I, you know, you take me around your office on FaceTime? Sure. You know, that's not a problem. Like people have been burned and they've been fleeced yeah. in other ways and we're, we're happy to do that. So we really go above and beyond and overboard to get people comfortable. And yeah. it's not just for their benefit, it's for our benefit as well. Because if you don't have a, um, a meeting of the minds or set expectations, you are set up to fail. Yeah. And if somebody believes that you're supposed to perform here and you perform here, right? 
then you failed, right? But what if you performed here and you told them you were going to perform here? And so there's this expectations. And so we love when investors come to the table and ask 15, 20 questions. The most dangerous investment partner to us is one who just calls up, reads a few things, is impulsive and writes, and then learns along the way. Yeah. So, you know, that's really, so we, we put a lot of time and effort in that and, um, you know, just go overboard to make sure that we're bringing on, you know, not investors, but investment partners and people yeah. who understand what they're getting into. Yeah. I love it. I love that approach. So smart. It's, it, you're right. It's for your, it's for your good as well as theirs, right? Like that person who just like gets impulsive, down the road, they that could end up being a bad relationship, right? Because they maybe aren't weren't even aware aware of what they were doing fully. So the person who asks all the questions up front, probably the relationship's going to be a lot smoother because they sort of ask those questions going in. Man, I this is a fun conversation for me. I, I really appreciate your time. How can people find you? How can they get a hold of you if they're interested, want to learn more? What can they yeah. do? Go to our website, uh, origininvestments.com. That's uh, that's very easy. So we actually, you know, the way we're set up is if you go to our website and you want to be somewhat anonymous, you can just download the information right there on our decks and you can research the firm or you can connect with somebody from investor relations on our website as well. We actually have a little um, chat box. You can schedule a call, do things. So we make it nice. really easy to get in contact with us. But again, if you want to stay anonymous and just kind of read our stuff and you know take your time. And I will say this, the best investors to us are the ones who come there, they download the information, they read, they come to the table ready with questions, understanding what they want to invest in, or at least talk about. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. you know, have the right questions. And I talk to my team all the time about this. And, you know, a lot of times they get people who just want you to tell me about origin. Well, you know what, you can learn about origin on our website. So we really, you know, we appreciate it when, when people are educated coming to the table, not about real estate, that's our job is to educate yeah. them about real estate, but at least how the funds operate, the basics and, yeah. you know, um, downloading those decks. And that's why we make it really easy and accessible for everybody um, to get the information. I love it. I, I was just looking onto your website. Sorry, I heard a little beep. I clicked on something in a beep. I'm like, oh, don't beep. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, well, listen, I, I, that'll all be in the show notes too so you guys can get on. We have, we'll have links to all of this so you can go to origininvestments.com, uh, download those decks, learn more, get a hold of Michael if you want to learn more. Um, again, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy. you got a lot going on, obviously, uh, but it's been highly educational, a lot of fun. So thank you again for doing this. Mike, thank you. This was a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Whether or not you're getting into multifamily and big investment strategies like Michael or not, the lessons are totally transferable, like we were talking about, especially when it comes to the way you treat your investors and that kind of thing. Like the concepts all are the same, whether you're big or small. So get out there and make it happen, guys, and make sure that you build your company with the right foundation with the right attitudes with the right principles and make sure that whatever you do you're always keeping your investors totally in the loop make sure they understand what's happening that's one big takeaway from this that i took guys guys like michael uh, listen you may not aspire to be as big as he is but everything that he did that those lessons that business structure, the way he goes about looking at real estate, totally transferable up and down the food chain in terms of how big or small you are as a company. So uh, don't feel like what he did you have to do, but by all means, if you think that you can do what he did and you want to do that and more, go for it. It's all out there for you. But nothing happens unless you go for it. Go after it. 
make something happen, take action. He quit a high paying job, started over, started his business and grew that to huge heights. There's nothing stopping you except you. Get out there and make it happen. We'll talk to you next time.